0: Hi, I'm Jonathan Pennington, and this is the Human Flourishing Podcast. This podcast is a repository of a wide variety of sermons, lectures, interviews, and other resources that I've recorded over the years. Today's episode is a sermon I preached at Sojourn East in Louisville, Kentucky. Good morning. Well, if we did a survey today and asked people what stories of the Bible uh, they know just across broader culture, I think we get a variety of answers. But for sure, one of them would be... Uh, The story of Jonah and the whale or the big fish that swallowed him up. And in fact, it's been that way forever. Within Jewish tradition, the story of Jonah and the whale has been very popular all throughout. Within the New Testament, we see this story comes up quite a few times. Jesus even makes analogies between himself and Jonah. Within Islam, interestingly, uh, Jonah in Arabic, his name is Nun, which means the one of the whale. Very prominent story. The only one of the 12 minor prophets to appear in the Quran, actually. But it's not just in the ancient world. Today as well, you can think of the classic piece of American literature, Moby Dick, which of course is all about a whaling hunting situation. The story of Jonah comes up several times uh, in it as well. On the other end of literature, you may have heard of Ultra Boy from the Legion of Superheroes. He's this uh, boy from the 30th century named Joe Na, who gets his superpowers when he flies his ship through this alien and then bursts out the other side, and then he has superpowers as a result. Somewhere in between these, we have the story of Pinocchio, who you may remember. A big part of his story is that he gets swallowed by a whale and is inside there and finds his his father, Geppetto, inside there. And and the original version and the Disney versions are a little different on how it works out, but the whale's an important part of it. And there's even Jonah and the whale vodka. As one person noted, a whimsical and childlike look for a premium vodka. Who says alcohol children in the Bible can't mix? So (laughs) they're... It is a very odd, uh, very whimsical sort of presentation. So Jonah and the whale is everywhere. Now, most people probably don't know where to find Jonah in the Bible or really much about the story besides the whale part of it. But at least this part of the story, this part is familiar. A guy is thrown overboard. He gets swallowed by a whale. He stays in there for a while and then he gets vomited back up on land alive. But the question is... What does this story really mean, and what does this story have to do with us today? Well, for four weeks um, here at Sojourn, we are preaching through these very four, four, short four chapters of Jonah in the Old Testament. Last week, we heard from James, who introduced us to the story by going through chapter one. Today, we're going to talk about chapter two, and then we'll go on in future weeks as well. So. For for Jonah chapter 2, though, to understand it, I do want us to think for just a minute again what happens in Jonah chapter 1. So let me just briefly review this. You have printed in your bulletin chapter 2, but hold on to that. We'll we'll get to that in just a second. So in that first part of the story from last week, whether you're here or not, we meet a prophet from God. He's living about the 8th century B.C., and of course, we meet a lot of prophets in the Old Testament, but what makes Jonah stand out is that his story doesn't go the way that prophets' stories usually do. In fact, quite the opposite we see in chapter one, rather than being a faithful witness of God in the world, which a prophet's called to do, he doesn't want to do what God wants him to do, of course. And instead of going and preaching grace to the Ninevites, he flees the other way. Why? It's because the Ninevites, the Assyrians, were bad people. They were God's enemies, and Jonah does not want to be an instrument of grace to them. And so you may know what happens in the rest of chapter 1. Jonah gets on a boat to avoid God's command, But God hasn't given up on him. God hasn't given up on his plans. So the Lord sends a huge storm, as we saw last week, and you can read there, to batter the boat to the point at which even these seasoned sailors are fearing for their lives. They cast lots to figure out what's going on. Jonah admits that it's his fault. He's resigned. He doesn't really care about his life anymore. And he says, just throw me overboard. He realizes he he can't escape from God. So that's what they do. They throw him overboard, and the sea is stilled. Now, the story could easily end there. After all, the point would be pretty clear. You can't run from God's will. He's sovereign. Maybe we could also note the irony of chapter one that um, Jonah, who is a called person by God, doesn't believe and trust in God, but the pagan sailors do. We could note that irony. And that could be the whole story. It could just be a lesson for us. Don't run away from God. But it doesn't. The story doesn't end there, and that's where we pick it up right at, the, right at the very end of chapter one, which should be where the chapter break is. It is in the Hebrew Bible, but it's not for us. And if you have a Bible there, you can see you can see it on the screen, Jonah one seventeen, which is really kind of the beginning of chapter two. You have this totally unexpected turn in the story which comes out of nowhere. It says in 117, "Now the Lord provided a huge fish." to swallow Jonah and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. (laughs) What? I mean, we're so familiar with this story. We don't realize what an odd and totally unexpected turn in the story that is. After all, again, the story seems pretty straightforward, disobedient prophet, He receives the judgment he deserves. Just like the people that built the golden calf or anybody who turned against Aaron and Moses. They end of the story. Lesson, don't disobey God. But That's not where the story ends. God appoints a sea creature, a Leviathan, a whale, or some kind of huge fish, we don't know what it was, to come and swallow up and thereby to rescue Jonah, just like an ark traveling through the sea, enabling him not to drown as he anticipated, but to live for three days and then have life afterwards as well. And so At the end of chapter one, and then the beginning of chapter two, this giant fish appears, the one that makes Jonah so famous. And then chapter two ends in chapter two, verse 10, with the opposite of this happening. Again, he's swallowed up after three days, and he is now vomited back on dry land. And then if you look at one one of Jonah and three one of Jonah, you see that what happens is that God reboots the story. In one one, it says there that the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai. And then after all the events of chapter two, it starts over. The word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. And this time he goes and preaches to the Ninevites. So between that reboot of the story, what happens? What is happening in chapter two? We have what I like to think of a, a fish sandwich here with the giant sea creature appearing in 117 and then 210. And that's all we have from this famous whale that's even made his way to a vodka bottle. He swims away. We never hear from him again. His entire role in the story consists of swallowing and vomiting, of eating and burping. It's, it's really comedic. In fact, a lot of scholars, Jewish and others have pointed out that in a lot of ways, Jonah is a comedy in the sense that there's so such crazy things that happen into it, it kind of gives you the sense of its comedic value. You see, a sea creature capable of swallowing a person whole such that they could live inside, a leviathan, a whale, a great fish, all throughout the Bible is a symbol of chaos. It's a symbol of a monster representing chaos and destruction. I mean, the Jewish people were not seafaring people like a lot of people in the Mediterranean. They When they played... Jewish settlers of Catan, they did not use the expansion pack. They just stayed on the island, and they were very non-seafaring people because they saw the sea as darkness and chaos, even death. In fact, it's interesting to sort of trace this idea through the Bible because God is often depicted as controlling and separating the land from the waters as an act of his power. I mean, think that's what happens at creation, It's a separating of the land from the waters. At the Exodus, it's the separating of the Red Sea to save his people, the crossing of the Jordan, and it goes on and on, Jesus and the Sea of Galilee. Those are all images of God's power over chaos. And so the role of the great fish here is remarkably tame and even comedic. And we might get into, and this happens, especially in the modern period, speculations about what kind of fish was big enough to swallow a person, why the stomach acids didn't kill him for three days, what kind of fish he ate in there, did he find you know treasure from a ship, all the kind of things that happened in Pinocchio and all these things. That misses the point. The great monster fish here is presented very simply. God powerfully appoints him to be right where Jonah is when he goes into the water, He swallows Jonah without killing him, swims around for three days, and then throws him up at the end. He's probably the most famous fish in the world, but that's all he does. The key, friends, is to recognize what happens inside the fish during those three days and three nights, because it's something that's happening inside of Jonah, transitions the story from chapter one with what happened to what happens in chapter three, something happens inside of Jonah while he's inside the fish. And what we find there in chapter two, and we'll show it on the screen or you can see it in your bullets in there is a prayer. So look at it there with me. Let me read for you the first part of this prayer. It says from inside the fish, Jonah prayed to the Lord, his God. And he said, in my distress, I called to the Lord and he answered me. From deep in the realm of the dead, I called for help. And you listened to my cry. You hurled me into the depths into the very heart of the seas and the current swirled about me. All your waves and breakers swept over me. I said, I have been banished from your sight, yet I will look again toward your holy temple. The engulfing waters threatened me. The deep surrounded me. Seaweed was wrapped around my head. To the roots of the mountains, I sank down the earth beneath barred me in forever. Here, Jonah, after the fact, obviously, after the three days, and he's thinking back on this, in this crazy situation, at some point realizes, I need to pray. I need to turn to the Lord. It probably wasn't even a conscious choice. This is a natural thing for him to do, for all of us to do. And do you notice that this prayer, especially in verses three to six, takes like a downward progression, Jonah is depressed and in despair. He's really depressed in chapter one. He's apathetic. But then throughout this prayer, it's like as he goes deeper and deeper into the water, so does his heart says, he's hurled into the sea with current swelling around him. Then the waves and the breakers and God's sovereign control break over him. Verse five said, the, the waters begin to engulf him. He's sinking deeper into the depths. And that vivid image of seaweed wrapped around his head, such a powerful image, a, a, a fitting crown for one sinking into the depths of the sea. And then in verse six, finally, to the bottom all the way to the roots of the mountain in the, in the sea, barred in beneath the earth. It's just this descent uh, that matches both in his heart and is, his physical experience. And a lot of what Jonah says in this prayer is actually familiar to us from the Psalms. This, this is really a Psalm, and it, and it connects with a lot of the Psalms as well, including the idea of someone feeling like they are encompassed by cords of death. In chapter one, we saw Jonah's actions. He didn't want to preach a message of God's grace. In the midst of the storm on the sea, Jonah there appears apathetic at best. But here in chapter two, something begins to change. He's under duress and distress. He's about to die. And this awakens his heart. Even as he physically sinks down into the water about to drown, he begins to awaken back to God. And at the rock bottom place, he hits a turning point. And then look at the second half of the prayer, starting in the middle of verse 6. But you, Lord my God, brought my life up from the pit. Even as verses three to six show him sinking farther and farther down to the sea, verses six to nine begin to make the ascent back up to God. Jonah, looking back, recognizes that the Lord my God, he says, brought my life up from the pit. And even while his life is ebbing away in verse seven, he remembers. A very important biblical idea of remembering Bringing to mind what God has done in the past for the sake of the future. And his prayers begin to rise up to God's temple. So from the bottom of the sea, the place of chaos and darkness, he remembers and begins to see the temple, the high point, the place of light and life and God's presence on the land. And then in verses 8 and 9, Jonah, for the first time in the whole book, has true insight. He acknowledges that trusting in idols is in vain, but what God wants is a shout of praise, a whole heart that seeks him because salvation comes from the Lord. And then the prayer ends on this perfect high note of salvation coming from the Lord. And in response, God appoints the fish to complete its task. It spits Jonah back on a dry land and sets him back on his calling. So that, I would suggest to you, what happens there? is the turning point of the whole book of Jonah. Jonah goes from rebellion, which led to apathy and disengagement to this high point of seeing God clearly and proclaiming the great truth that salvation comes from the Lord. Now, besides the obvious application of when you want to rebel against God, stay away from water, that's an obvious application. What does this story really mean for you and me, and especially this turning point in Jonah chapter 2. What possible connections could there be between this rebellious, somewhat pouty, seaweed-covered, and now fish-gut-smelling Jewish guy from 2,700 years ago? What could that have to do with you and me in our complex lives today? Well, throughout these 2,700 years since, for both Jews and Christians, Jonah's story has always been read as being more than an historical account. It's being read of, as something that applies directly to you and me. And I'd like to just suggest to you today, as we think about this text, three things that we can take away from Jonah 2 this morning, three things. And the first is this, God is exceedingly compassionate. God is exceedingly compassionate. That high point in chapter two, verse 10, really, I would suggest to you is probably the theme of the whole book. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And what does that mean? It means that God is sovereign and powerful and does what he wants. But it also means that God is exceedingly compassionate and gracious toward his creatures. He really cares for the pain and suffering of his creatures, including self-inflicted stupidity that causes pain. Both things that happen to us and things that we bring upon ourselves, God is moved to action out of his great compassion and loving care. After all, he is the one who chooses to rescue and provide for his people despite their rebellion in the midst of it. That's Jonah's realization. In the midst of his suffering that was self-inflicted even in this case, He realizes at the bottom, both emotionally and physically, that God showed up and miraculously rescued him from himself and from the powers of death and destruction. That is an exceedingly beautiful example of God's compassion. In fact, when you look at the whole story of Jonah, I would suggest to you this is what it's really about. It is about God's amazing compassion toward his creatures everywhere. It's his compassion toward his rebellious, non-covenantal people, the Assyrians, the Ninevites. That's what motivates the whole story. It's wanting to show compassion on these people that God commissions Jonah in the first place. And we'll see in chapter three, when we get to that, that God is compassionate even towards his enemies because they're made in his image. He has no covenant with them. They're wicked, but he preaches a message of repentance to them and then welcomes them. In fact, in chapter 4, we'll see in a couple weeks' time that this compassion of God is exactly what Jonah made Jonah so mad. In chapter 4, verse 2, it says, Isn't this what I said, Lord, after the Ninevites repent? When I was still at home, this is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you're a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. That's true of who God is, even though Jonah as we'll see in chapter four, isn't thrilled with that towards others. He wants it for himself. But you see, God is not only compassionate towards his non-covenantal people, he's also compassionate towards a rebel among his own people. Jonah, who is rebellious, is not killed either directly or indirectly by God. Instead, it is God's great compassion that provides this whale, this fish, which again in the, symbol, in the Bible is a symbol of destruction and chaos, becomes an instrument, not of judgment, but of salvation. It is a great fish of compassion that Jonah experiences. And of course, it's not just the story of Jonah where we learn that God is exceedingly compassionate. We learn this truth all over the place. Let me just... Rifle off a few beautiful verses from the Psalms. The Lord is gracious and righteous. Our God is full of compassion. Psalm 145, 9, the Lord is good to all. He has compassion on all he has made. 2 Corinthians 3, Paul writes, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion, the God of all comfort, who comforts us in our troubles so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves receive from God. Or you remember those words from Psalm 103? The greatest Psalms, the psalmist writes, Praise the Lord, my soul, all my inmost being. Praise his holy name. Praise the Lord, my soul. Forget none of his benefits. Who forgives all your sins, heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit and crowns you with what? Love and compassion. Who satisfies your desires with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagle's. And of course, when you get to the New Testament, Jesus is presented as the ultimate compassionate one. In his healing of the blind and the lame and others, the gospels regularly tell us that he was moved with compassion to do this. In the miraculous providing of the meals in the wilderness, it says explicitly it was because he had great compassion on the people. And in one of Jesus's most famous parables one that we don't have time to explore today, but it has very interesting connections with the story of Jonah, the parable of the prodigal son or the two sons. Jesus explains why he does what he does by describing the father this way. Do you remember these words? When the rebellious and foolish son repents and is returning to his household, what does it say about the father? It says, while the son was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. And he ran to his son and threw his arms around him and kissed him. Friends, if you have any doubt about who the God of the Bible is, and if you have any questions, which we all do, struggles with problems of God's sovereignty and human responsibilities, and why is there evil in the world and evil in my life, and all the questions we have theologically, the one thing today you must know about God is that the God who created you is a God full of compassion. He sees our suffering and he cares. That is a core truth of who God is. And Jonah experienced it as well. A second thing to learn from Jonah too is that death produces life. The second thing Jonah 2 shows us is that death produces life. It's really one of the profoundest truths that God's people have learned throughout the ages is that it is often some type of metaphorical death, maybe emotionally, a job loss, a relational ending, financial ruin, business failure. It's often that death that we experience, death in ourselves, physical problems, That is precisely the times and places where we begin to experience new life. Have you witnessed that? Have you experienced that? It is the times when we are brought low that we begin to experience life. Do you know what I mean? It's through loss and breaking and feeling despair and messed up situations, things that have come upon us, things that we've caused ourselves, that we begin to see clearly and begin to find freedom again. And that's certainly modeled in Jonah's story. It is from his lowest point of despair, his place of chaos, drowning, that he finally is able to see the temple. It is often despair and the death places that God uses in his kind compassion to break the crusty parts of our hearts and the scales off of our eyes. Though it's not entirely what we'd expect or want in the moment, death produces life again for Jonah and it does for us as well. Our family uh, lives in a subdivision, not too far from here, but it's between a couple of really busy roads, uh, Hurstbourne and Shelbyville. And my younger kids and I like to take bike rides a lot and long walks. And I, I try to walk every day quite a ways. And we, we like to go to a destination. So either St. Arbuck's or my favorite muffin or Lucky's Market or sometimes skewed or something. The problem is for several years, there was, we, we couldn't figure out how to get to these places because it's very dangerous to go on these roads without sidewalks and and things like that. But then a neighbor of ours, uh, of ours told us that there's actually some secret passageways and they really are secret passageways that go from the subdivisions that connect ours together into this big parking lot from which you can get to all these places. And if you go through another secret passageway, you can get into this other subdivision. And so, Having been told where they were and doing a little exploring, we found them several years ago. Now we use them all the time. And, and one of them is at the end of this very long, quiet, dead-end street. It's a, it's a subdivision that has no outlet at all. You go into it, and you have to go back out the same way. There are signs that say no outlet. And at the very end of this subdivision, it's a very long street, and it's clearly a dead-end. There's just this, this wooden picket fence, six-foot-high picket fence there. And it is, there is no outlet. until you get right on it. And then it turns out that even though it clearly looks like a dead end, there the two fences have been built in an overlapping way and there's a little gap between them just the size for a bicycle to get through that you can only go through once you're right on top of it. And you'd never know it was there because from far away and even pretty close it looks like a dead end. Every time I go through that and I go through it almost every day walking or on a bike I, I'm just aware of what a powerful illustration that is, of the fact that things that look like a dead end and tight places are often the place of life. Because once you get through that, you're on this dead end street, it opens up into this massive parking lot from which you can go all different kinds of directions. It is really a remarkable experience. Every time I come through it, I I think that again. I think I'm gonna use this as a sermon illustration. But I also think it's it's really true that. Things in our lives, and maybe today some of you are at this dead-end place or you're heading towards something and it just it's a dead-end. You have no idea what's going to happen. God often opens a way and brings us through a place of life that's larger than the place we were before through that. It stinks, it's painful, it hurts, but death does produce life if we submit ourselves to it. And this leads to the third and final thing I want to say that really just ties these together. And that is that in all the variation of human experience, God's compassion is bigger. Tying this all together, what do I want you to take away from this message today? I've been asking myself that and I'll make it very clear. I want you to understand from Jonah that in all that happens in our lives, including the wide variety of human emotions and experiences, God's compassion toward us is bigger than all of them. Because you see, the human experience for all people, including Christians, is moments of of faith, of clarity, of despair, of rebellion, of foolishness, of apathy. Our lives are a contradiction. They are full of all kinds of things. And anyone who, I I don't trust anybody who doesn't talk that way. (laughs) Anyone who acts like everything is okay is not the reality. Our lives are full of all kinds of contradictions, but God's compassion and kindnesses are bigger than this always. Part of what makes the Jonah story so intriguing and memorable and powerful is that Jonah is actually not a hero of the faith. Like Abraham or David, he is, as one commentator says, a holy man as screw up. He's a comedic figure. He does everything wrong almost, yet through him, God still does right. Have you noticed that in the story of Jonah, everyone and everything else in the whole story obeys God? The sailors, the captain, the whale, the Ninevites, the king, the plant, the worm, everyone except Jonah obeys God. It is remarkable. And yet, God is compassionate on Jonah and rescues him and uses him. In fact, at the end of the story, as we'll see in chapter four, it turns out to be a lesson to Jonah, the whole book does, about God's compassion. In fact, there are several fascinating ways to think about Jonah as a holy man screw up that's similar in the Gospels to my favorite and yours maybe too, Peter, who Jesus calls Simon Bar-Jonah, son of Jonah at one point, and who has a similar reluctance in Acts chapter 10 to go and preach to the Gentiles. There's a lot more to explore there. But again, another character who is very flawed, yet knows the compassion of God. The point is that our lives, friends, are very mixed. And to live the Christian life is not a sunny, unidirectional journey towards greater ease and glory every day like we'd expect. The Christian life is full of contradiction. As one person has wisely observed, while loving Christ, we find ourselves turning from him. While trusting Christ, we often battle fear and anxiety. While serving Christ, we often struggle with disappointment about events in our lives." And we don't want to sugarcoat Jonah and act like he's a paragon of virtue here. He's not. He's rebellious. But at the same time, he experiences God's grace and kindness and compassion. And it's bigger than his sin. And to close today, let me show you one more picture. Maybe. Yes. I knew the picture wasn't up there because I hadn't heard any laughs yet. But uh, last Saturday night, my wife and I were in Indianapolis with my old college roommate who's there in the middle and his wife, Glenn, or his wife, Nancy, my old college roommate, Glenn, and his wife, Nancy. And I show you this picture, not just to show off my amazing purple suit that gives me magical dancing abilities, at least in my mind it does, but because of Nancy and Glenn and this real life example coming through death and God's great compassion being greater than all. There's so much I could tell you about their story, about Glenn's impact on my life when he offered to be my roommate when I'd only been a Christian like a month or something, and how the impact he had on me, about each of us standing up in each other's weddings, about all the years since that Glenn and Nancy have been serving faithfully on staff with Campus Crusade for Christ all over the world. Pouring their lives into students in different countries and here, about their four beautiful kids, 12 and under, about what a character Nancy is, this woman who loves to dance. My wife and I always still laugh at her own wedding. Uh, She had a moment where everyone cleared the floor and she performed ABBA's Dancing Queen. It was like so classic, you know? Or I could also tell you about how nine months ago, after feeling not right for a long time, the doctors told Glenn and Nancy that her body is completely full of terminal cancer. And for nine months, several months longer than anyone said she would live, they've been living out, living with this sort of death really hanging above their necks, processing it emotionally, trying to figure it out medically, processing it with their children, trying to plan for the future, trying to live And things are nearing, things are very near the end for Nancy, who just turned 45. And so she wanted to have a dance party and a 70s dance party she called Still Staying Alive at 45. And so that's what we did last weekend. We had a big dance party for Nancy and worthy of a purple suit for sure. And it really was a, a wonderful time. And I realized at the very end that it really was a vigil. For the dancing queen. It was a celebration of life in the face of death. And there are many more things I experienced that night, and maybe I'll come back to that in a future sermon. But what I just want to say today is that I know if Glenn and Answer were standing up here with me this morning, they would affirm with their whole hearts and with hearts more alive than yours and mine, frankly that in the midst of all this despair and pain and fear and bad days and questionings and mixed experiences, that they have found life and they have found God to be exceedingly compassionate toward them. Friends, in Jonah's story, in Glenn and Nancy's story, in your story, the Lord wants to say to you today, Trust me, I am the God who made you, and am sovereign, and am compassionate, so look to me. And one of the places we see this, it's such a delight each week that we get to celebrate God's compassion that he sent his son, and on his last night, he spoke of his compassion by saying, this is my body that I'm giving to be broken for you. And this wine is my blood. It's representative of my blood poured out out of my great compassion for your suffering and your need for a savior. And so we wanna invite you today, if you are a follower of Christ, come forward and partake of this meal as a remembrance. And I would encourage you in taking of it today, think about God's compassion. Maybe read Psalm 103 before you come up here again and think about all of his benefits towards you. So I'm going to pray the musicians will come forward. And again, if you're following Christ today, come and rejoice in this table. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to the Human Flourishing Podcast. To learn more or get in touch with me, visit my website, JonathanPennington.com.